Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In a previous episode, Mike, we were focusing on the life of Joseph and discovering that actually there's nothing in the Bible where Joseph says anything. He was a practical person and uh, we've just got his actions to, to, to remember. With Mary, there's a lot more here. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Let's focus on Mary. And, and there they are in, in Nazareth, um, this betrothed couple. Just explain again, what, what is betrothal? Yeah, so like we saw in a previous episode, betrothal was what we would call engagement these days, but far more than engagement. Betrothal was a legal commitment to marry. It normally lasted for a year. So the parents of Mary and Joseph would have probably chosen them. This is a small community, remember, probably a couple of hundred people or so. And the parents would have set up this marriage while they were still young. Mary, we think probably only 14, 15, something like that in this period. And the agreement, the betrothal made between her and Joseph. And the betrothal was a a binding agreement, a legal agreement to proceed to marriage within the next year. So that's how we first come across her. She's betrothed. She's in this commitment to proceed to marry. And it's during that period of commitment that it looks like it's all going to go wrong. So young Mary, who's only just of childbearing age by mm. the sound of it, yeah. um, is is in for a shock. She's in for a shock because this angel, Gabriel, that sort of fearsome character who makes rare appearances in the whole of the Bible, only on very special occasions, um, appears to her while she's there in Nazareth and during this period of engagement and uh, sort of, you know, appears out of the blue and says to her, greetings, favoured woman, or hail Mary, full of grace, as the traditional version has it. The Lord is with you. And, and she's both, well, she's a mixture. She's perplexed at what he means, and she's quite terrified because I think this Gabriel figure, you know, is quite a, an awesome character. Uh, and so the angel says, don't, don't be afraid, Mary, you've found favour with God. Well, I like that bit. It would be good for the words to stop there. But what is about to follow, frankly, looks anything but favour. You've found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever and ever, and his kingdom will never end. You think, wow, what an incredible prophecy. But there's just one problem. One is she's not married yet, and two, she's kept herself pure and faithful. She has not had sexual relationships not just with Joseph, but with no one else. In fact, her response to the angel is, um, how can this happen? I am a virgin. And people in the first century knew where babies came from just as well as we do today. So it's not like she's saying, no, I don't believe you. 
none of that at all. But it's, um, excuse me, uh, how can this happen? Because I'm a virgin, I'm unmarried, I'm not in sexual relationships. And this powerful reply, Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And then to like confirm it, he, he tells her that her relative Elizabeth is also pregnant. She's now in her sixth month. So just go and see the sign. So God offers her this sign. And Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. And the angel left her. What an incredible, faith-filled response. Now, we saw in a previous episode a husband-to-be, Joseph, a, a, a faithful spiritual man, but very practical. Here's a faithful spiritual woman who, who seems much more spiritually perhaps sensitive, gentle, um, trusting. But what an amazing experience to have. You're not just going to become pregnant, but you're going to become pregnant with the son of God, that promised descendant of David, who, of course, was one of her own ancestors. Have I missed something? When the angel said, you will conceive and have a son, she could have thought that was with Joseph. She could, couldn't she, at that point? Except the angel happens to leave her a gift. <laughs> it's this miracle of what we call the virgin birth or the incarnation. It's at that point, if you notice, it said that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That was what was going to cause her to be pregnant, though you're quite right. I think first thinking it was the only way people could become pregnant, isn't it? But here's this promise that it will be the power of the Most High that would come upon you. So suddenly she has to face up to the fact that not only is she going to become pregnant, she's going to become pregnant through an incredible miracle of the Holy Spirit at work in her womb, creating this brand new life, starting from scratch, just as God had done with Adam in the garden, creating this new life. So here's the, the new man, the last Adam, as Paul calls him, who's going to be created in her womb by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. So this is what we call the virgin birth? The virgin birth or the incarnation. John talks about this in, in John chapter 1. He sort of comes at the coming of Jesus, not from the sort of Christmas story angle as we talk about it, but from the cosmic angle. It begins with, in the beginning, you know, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then suddenly he talks about how this Word, capital W, he's thinking of Jesus in verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This eternal word, this God, this son of God who had lived from all eternity with the father in the heaven at a moment in time, chooses to divest himself of all those godly powers and to allow the Holy Spirit to cause him to be born as a human being within Mary's womb. This is 
an incredible miracle. And, and Christians just have to say, listen, we we know these things don't happen. It is a miracle. This, And if you think about it, if God is going to come into the world, it's a bit unlikely it come in a normal way like anyone else would. So here is this incredible uh, doctrine of the incarnation, the virgin birth, God coming in human form into Mary's womb, fully God, but fully man, as God starts off this brand new human race in Jesus. She grew up as a sort of good Jewish girl, presumably. So for her to take this in and (laughs) absorb what was being said by the angel, you, you can't begin to imagine. I don't think you can. And uh, you remember the angel that said, well, go and see Elizabeth. Uh, go and see. So she trips off a few days later, it says, to uh, to where uh, Elizabeth lives down in Judea, where she and Elizabeth and Zachariah lived. And as Mary enters the room, Elizabeth, who's already pregnant, feels the baby leap within her. It's, it's John the Baptist there within her womb. And he leaps within her and he says, the child's filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and Elizabeth cries out, God's blessed you above all women. Suddenly something's happening in the Holy Spirit here. They suddenly know that something has happened. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? Now, Mary's not said a word yet to her. And yet, at this point, Mary has this confirmation that, she'd needed. She'd not asked for it, but God had given it to her. And at this point, she bursts out in a song of praise. It's the song that many Christian traditions call the Magnificat from the Latin word magnifies. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And it's this powerful, almost Old Testament type prophetic song in which she sings praise to God for for what he has done, not just for her, but for all his people. And then she stays with Elizabeth uh, for three months and until the baby's ready to be born. And then she comes back home to Nazareth and to Joseph. So from that sort of initial moment of, of hesitation, of perhaps confusion, there's a real faith that rises up within her. Yes, and I think it's important to say there's never any doubt in Mary's mind, there are questions, and I love that because God can cope with our questions. And Mary comes with her questions, how can this be? She doesn't say, I don't believe you, God. Hmm. But how can this be? God God doesn't mind at all when we bring our questions, but they're, they're humble questions. They're not arrogant questions. And so she is a woman of a faith and trust, we've already seen how Joseph too was a man of faith and trust, perhaps a different character. But she's an incredibly trusting woman at this time. Can we learn from the way she asked those questions? How can this be? Yes, I think we can. And I think I'd just go back to that point I said is God doesn't mind our questions. You know, sometimes we don't grow in our faith because we don't dare to ask God the questions. And the trouble is many of us leave our questions until things have gone wrong in life. And then the only question we've got is, why did this happen to me? But if we would learn 
like Mary to bring our questions to God earlier as life's unfolding. He's saying, could you explain this to me, Lord? Could you tell me what's going on here? Could you show me something from your word? God is big enough to cope. And the story of Mary shows that. Not once is Mary rebuked for her questions, but they're questions that are with faith rather than without faith. So after this amazing song of praise, the Magnificat, as you say, it's sometimes referred to, um, ultimately, of course, her son is born. And there's that journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And uh, we still have in our minds, I'm sure, this sort of Christmas scene, uh, which may, like you said in a previous episode, have some details that are not quite there in the Bible text. Yes, we, we've probably accrued a few things in the story on the way. Luke chapter 2 goes on to tell us how Mary and Joseph had to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem because the Emperor Caesar Augustus had called for a census of his whole empire so he could know how many citizens he got, so he could know how much he could tax them. And so they have to go to Bethlehem. Now, Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel make clear that both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. So they've got double reason for needing to go back to Bethlehem. Mary is heavily pregnant uh, at the time. And the text simply tells us that while she was there, the time came for her baby to be born. And she gave birth, birth to her firstborn son, wrapped in snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in the manger because there was, now the New Living Translation gets around it by saying there was no lodging available for them. <laughs> so it goes for a middle line there. Of course, in our mind's eye, and from many nativities that we've all seen, we think of them turning up at the inn, knocking on the door, and the innkeeper saying, sorry, no room, and then the innkeeper's wife saying, no, well, they could have the stable round the back, couldn't they? But the Greek word that's used there, there was no lodging. There was no place. It probably means in the guest room. What, what, what's the guest room? It would have been the guest room of the family house. Now, remember... At this time, most people lived in one-roomed houses that they often shared with the animals as well. The family has gathered from all across Israel and Judea and Galilee and all those that are part of the family have all had to come back and descend and all squash in, a bit like some of us have to do at Christmas, you know, when all our families come and mattresses here, there and everywhere. And there is just no room for this lady who will need, of course, some, a little bit of privacy to be able to give birth. So there's no room in the guest room. So it looks like they either used a stable or what's more likely is we know in Bethlehem, because many have been discovered, there are caves cut into the rock there that shepherds used to use for protecting themselves, keeping warm at night, sometimes putting some of the animals in. And it could well have been in one of those where they took a feeding trough, put in fresh straw and gave birth to the child. By the way, in some Eastern Christian traditions, they hold to the fact that Mary was completely on her own when she gave birth to Jesus. And this comes out of their, their sense of the mystery and the holiness and the wonder of what was happening at this point. The Bible simply doesn't tell us. But personally, I think that's highly unlikely in the culture of the time. You know, these are, these are small places, families are tight units, communities are tight units. And I think it's highly likely that some of the women family members and maybe some of the neighbours would have been there 
to help with the delivery of the baby. But the truth is we're simply not told. And in a sense, you know, here is a mystery of the universe. It just says, and while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. We're not told how, when, where, what. It's just incredible mystery summed up in such simplicity. And when it says the time came, that's not presumably just implying she was ready to give birth, but it seems to be pointing to a point in history. Yes, I think there's like double depth here. I think at first level meaning in the text, yeah, she was ready to give birth and she did. But Paul tells us in one of his letters that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. And there's a sense here behind, yes, it was time, but it was also God's time, God's moment in this great big story that that stretches from Genesis to Revelation. And here is the crowning point of it, the birth of the one who would be the one that the whole of the Old Testament story had looked forward to, the birth of of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, the birth of no one less than the Son of God himself. You can only begin to marvel at what must have been going through her mind. Absolutely, because, of course, she did know and Joseph did know. They'd been told who this baby was. I mean, any parents, you know, particularly your first child, I I can still remember the birth of my first daughter and and as my wife delivered this baby, this little life is there and you're thinking... Where did you come from? And you know the biology of it, but the mystery and the wonder of it. So there's all of that for Joseph and Mary. And yet there's all that's going on of what they have been told of who this child would be amazing. I don't know whether anybody's asked you this question before, but um, presumably Jesus looked a bit like Mary. Would he have looked a bit like Joseph? Well, listen, the short answer is I have no idea who he looked like and nor does anyone else because the New Testament doesn't tell us. And, of course, if we start to go down that line, we're looking at the sort of biology of the virgin birth. Putting it simply, did the Holy Spirit take, as it were, one of Mary's eggs and fertilise it? Or did he simply create a brand new life that grew within Mary's womb. The New Testament doesn't address any of those issues. They're issues that were meaningless at the time, of course. What it does stress is that Joseph took Mary as his wife. So from the moment he does that, Jesus is the legal son of Joseph and Mary even though he is the son from eternity of the Father in heaven. So you'll just have to go on with your own imaginings of what he looked like. One thing's for sure is Mary didn't adopt Jesus. He was her son. And um, the Bible refers to the things that she stored up in her heart. Yes. Yeah, that's incredible. Again, just reflecting back constantly, I'm sure, of what the angel had said to her, and of course the angel may have said more than we just have recorded in summary form in the New Testament. And imagine as your child grows, because we don't really see a lot, do we, over these years? You know, we, we get little windows that after Jesus's birth, they, they take him to be circumcised to the temple, and that's where uh, 
Simeon sings his song over the child and then Joseph takes them down to Egypt uh, because he's warned in a dream uh, to, to go there for protection. And then they end up going back to Nazareth and growing up. But we hear very little then uh, and, until the child is 12. So we don't get to know lots of what was going on. But as Mary saw her son growing, and remember Luke says he grew in wisdom and in stature, in favour with God, and man in wisdom, mentally, in stature, physically, in favor with man, socially, in favor with God, spiritually, in every dimension. This Jesus grows as a real human being. And Mary's there looking, watching, wondering, treasuring these things in her heart, going back again and again, I'm sure, to what she was told at the beginning. And, and seeing this unfolding before her eyes. We said in an earlier episode that Joseph, Jesus' father, sort of disappears off the scene as far as the Bible's concerned. What about Mary? Do we, do we know much of Mary as, as, as Jesus grows up? Well, we don't see an awful lot of her. We certainly get more than we do for Joseph. But it's interesting she doesn't have as dominant a role within the Gospels as she comes to take in some later Christian traditions. So she sort of keeps popping up in the story, uh, if I can put it that way. Uh, one of the places she pops up is in John chapter 2, that well-known story of the wedding at Cana, where they run out of wine. Now, remember, in those days, a wedding festival used to take a whole week. You invited the whole village. So this is not an excuse for drunkenness. They simply ran out of wine, an incredible social faux pas for the father mm. of the bride. And there's that story where Mary comes to Jesus and says, uh, son, they've run out of wine. Now, why does she do that? Is it because of all that she knows and all that she's being told? Is, is she sort of saying to him, uh, come on, son, you can, you, you could do something about this. You know, I, I know who you are. I know what you could do. And uh, Jesus simply says to her, uh, dear woman, what, what does that have to do with me? Dear woman, that's so tender mm. because a little rebuke is going to come. Dear woman, what does that have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? My time has not yet come. That's an interesting comment. It looks like Mary at this point was trying to nudge her boy along and say, come on, Jesus, I know what it is that you've come for. This, this could be your moment. And so there's this little gentle rebuke of his mother. Understanding, but a little gentle rebuke. And then, of course, he does this incredible miracle of turning the water into wine. And the water was the water that was stored in those jars that were kept for ritual washings. It's almost as if Jesus is acting out in a parable here that the old Jewish religion with its need for ritual wash is over. You're not going to need these anymore. And he turns it into joy and wine and gladness. So. We get a little glimpse there of her not fully understanding. She knows who Jesus is and why he's come, but she, she doesn't really 
fully understand. We get another incident in in Mark chapter 3 where she comes to Jesus because a typical mother here, Mm. she's really worried about her boy working too hard (laughs) and and that, you know, son, you you really need to take uh, a break from here. So we get these little glimpses. Very human. Very human. And I think that's the thing that stands out to me is where we do see Mary in the Gospels, she is not as some glorified figure who is way above us. She's very, very like us. Not some holier-than-thou person. Absolutely not. She's she's deeply, deeply spiritual, deeply trusting, and yet the sort of person that we are, the, the sort of person who has her humble questions, who at times thinks Jesus isn't quite working to our schedule and he could do with a little nudge to, to get him to ask faster. So I think she's a a very accessible figure. And I think we make a mistake when we elevate her to something that is above us because she is very much among us in the Gospels and yet an incredible example of, of faith and trust as one who is among us. If she gave birth to Jesus when she was, you said, what, 13, 14, something like that? Yes, probably 14 or so, we think. So at this point in her life, how old would you be then? She's just in her 40s. Yes. Yeah, she's probably in her mid-40s at this point because when Jesus starts his ministry, the Gospels tell us he was about 30 years old. So add her 14, maybe 15 when he was born. So, yeah, she's probably a 45-year-old woman, um, which you know was not an inconsiderable age in 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 those days, and that's the kind of age she is. Then, when she finds her son actually crucified on the cross, that must have been so incredibly painful for her. I mean, first of all, any mum listening to this broadcast, any dad would know that if you were to see your son taken in the way that Jesus was, the the pain, the agony of seeing your own flesh and blood, your own child um, being treated in that way, of him being flogged and eventually being nailed to a cross um, must have been incredibly heartbreaking. It's interesting that there on the cross, one of the things that Jesus does as he's on the cross, and he's very aware of his mother, and he, he tells John, the Apostle John, you know, that he is to take care of his mother for him. You know, here's your mother, here's your son. And he commends her into John's care. He knows that, yes, she is a spiritual woman, but she's going to need caring for. But she never loses hope. Uh, One of the other places she pops up is in the upper room with the disciples when Jesus has returned to his father in heaven. Again, what a wrench that must have been Mm. for her. And yet she's there with the other disciples praying and seeking God for whatever it is that that God has. So she's the one who keeps popping up in the story at key points, very human, very like us with her questions at times, not always understanding things perfectly and yet continually trusting herself to God through all of it. So totally loyal to her son, understandably, her firstborn son. And as you said, I think, you know, she would have had other children as well. But Jesus was obviously at the centre of everything for her. And so at the end, 
we don't know presumably how she how she ended her life. We don't know from the Bible. Um, she simply disappears from the story. But there is a, a fairly early church tradition that she ended up her life in Ephesus. You remember I just said she was commended to John's care, mm. and John the Apostle uh, ended up in Ephesus and in that region, working in that region. Uh, and there's there's actually a chapel there to her memory, and we think that's probably where she ended her physical life. And again, that makes it pretty clear that Joseph, of course, was dead by this time or Jesus would not have needed to commend his mother to the care of John. Um, so, yeah, tradition has it that she lived to a good old age and that she lived there and worked with John in Ephesus. And I suppose the thing is with Mary, the mother of Jesus, there, there is a lot of tradition associated with, with, with her life. Yes. As you look again at what the Bible says about her life, what do you in particular, focus in on? Yes, I mean, if we stay with just what the Bible text itself says rather than what church tradition has added, I think for me the thing that stands out for Mary is a woman who did have her godly questions but who continually trusted God and trusted what God said. And I think that's an incredible example for us today. You know, if you've gone through life and your Christian life without any questions, please get in touch and let us know what the secret is. Because all of us have questions, all of us face challenges, and God does not want us to pretend that those do not exist. What God wants us to do is to humbly bring those questions, like Mary did when she said to the angel, not I don't believe that, but how can this be? Could you explain a little more of this to me? And so that mixture of humble submission to God, yet not hesitating to bring your questions to God along with that submission, I think what an amazing example this woman is. If we could be those who both trusted God confidently, yet were not afraid to bring our questions to him, who knows how he could use us, just like he used Mary. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB Player or with your favourite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 Minutes.